0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to a special episode of Passing Judgment. We have decided to do another episode in the wake of news that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court, has passed away. This is obviously startling news in the legal world, in the political world. And today we are joined by the show's producer and often co-host, Joe Armstrong. We're going to talk a little bit about Justice Ginsburg's legacy. And we're going to talk about what this might mean going forward, again, both politically, only a month and a half until the election, and legally, because every vacancy on the Supreme Court has so much impact, and is so important for Americans daily lives. So Joe, thank you for hopping on the line so quickly.
1: It is my honor, Jessica, and I would like to extend my personal and the show's condolences to her two children, Jane and James. I think she has four grandchildren. Her husband, Martin Ginsburg, passed away in 2010, and uh, it's just a big, big, big day, as you said, both in terms of our democracy and for their family. So tell me a little bit about her shadow. She casts a very, very long shadow on the Supreme Court. Tell me about some of the uh, decisions that she was involved in over the years.
0: I think at this point, it's Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is known for her decisions, but she's also known for her place in popular culture. If there's one Supreme Court member that people know, it's the notorious RBG. You know, Chief Justice John Roberts, I think it was just a few years ago, uh, introduced Justice Ginsburg at a large event, and he kind of jokingly said, I'm glad I could be here to try and raise Justice Ginsburg's profile because she has really captured the public attention. There's been documentaries about her, films about her. And for a lot of young women, for a lot of female law students, she really is, or was, I should say, someone that they looked up to as a trailblazer. And why is that? From the beginning of her career, she really set out to work to show that uh, women's rights and gender equality were so desperately important. And she had a really smart approach that she took in the beginning of her career where she wasn't always bringing cases on behalf of women. Sometimes she would actually bring a case on behalf of a man who was impacted by a law that had a disparate impact, meaning a different impact on men and women. And she would say, look, by having certain preconceptions about gender, it harms everybody. And so she was known as a trailblazer for women's rights when she was an advocate. She argued before the Supreme Court a number of times, and then was nominated to be on the Court of Appeals. And then of course, by President Clinton, was nominated to be on the Supreme Court. And the not really haha funny, but almost ironic thing is that when she was nominated, some people described her as a moderate. Now, of course, when she passed away on the court, she was the senior justice in the liberal wing of the court. And uh, it's really hard to overstate her impact on women's rights. But there's a lot of areas where she, um, you know, she she really made a huge mark. Think about voting rights and her landmark dissents in a case called Shelby County. And Joe, if I could go on for one moment further, I'm remembering an anecdote where uh, when Justice Ginsburg was first put on the Supreme Court, there was a very famous decision in gender rights uh, called the uh, Virginia Military Institute dealing with whether or not uh, VMI had to accept women Uh, to be part of BMI, to be um, cadets. And at that point, Chief Justice Rehnquist, who decided who to give opinions to, said to Justice O'Connor, you know, Justice O'Connor, you'll write it. And she said, no, this is for Ruth. And um, it was Justice Ginsburg who wrote that opinion. And I think it will be one of the opinions that's um, cited in the history books as part of her legacy. So thank you for letting me go on so long about that.
1: Of course, you know, Jessica, this show uh, in memoriam could be 100 hours long, and we would still have a hard time scratching the surface of her impact on our democracy. Uh, also, these only the second of four female justices in the history of the court, uh, which ties into all the issues. And people have said many times, women's rights are human rights. So, uh, as you said, not just women's rights, but so many other things were you know, by the stroke of her pen or the things that she said. Very, very important. And culturally, I agree as well. So uh, if we could, let's pivot. What uh, Procedurally speaking, what happens now, both in a normal year and in this year specifically?
0: Well, what happens, of course, is when there's a Supreme Court vacancy, the president nominates somebody to fill that vacancy. And then presumably the Senate should uh, act under its constitutional duty to provide advice and consent. They should Act to provide that person with a hearing. Now, the reason we're kind of pausing here is many of the listeners will remember that Justice Antonin Scalia passed away in February of 2016. This was almost a year, about 10 months before the 2016 election. And President Obama nominated somebody to fill that position, but within, I believe it was 60 minutes of something very quick after Justice Scalia passed away. Um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican, obviously the leader of the Senate then and now, said, I'm not holding hearings. It's an election year. We're holding this seat open because we need the American people to weigh in and, and make a decision before... We fill this position. And he made strategically the right bet. So President Obama nominated Merrick Garland. He never had a hearing. Most Republican senators, I think, didn't even meet with him. And then President Trump won and nominated Neil Gorsuch, who now, of course, holds that seat.
1: Yeah, McConnell's exact words at the time, quote, The American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice. Therefore, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president. And as we have said, that came to pass. So now that's the big question in everyone's mind. Is he going to say something similar? And we have late breaking news to that effect. Uh, Not so long ago, within less than an hour of uh, Bader Ginsburg's passing, Mitch McConnell issued a statement on his Twitter page saying essentially the opposite of what he's going to say help me help me break this down so he said exactly what
0: but Senator Mitch McConnell saying boils down to the idea that now we have a president who's a Republican and the Senate that's controlled by Republicans so he's making a distinction between the situation in February of 2016 when President Obama obviously a Democrat was in office and the Senate was controlled by Republicans he's What he said is, you don't hold confirmation hearings when there's a divided government. Now, I just have to say personally, that is such a thin distinction. If there is a vacancy, then you either have a rule that says we don't hold hearings in election year, which frankly is preposterous, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that, or... Uh, you do hold elections. Now, we are very, very close. Now, this is not even an election year. This is an election month and a half. We have 40 days and change before the election. And so for me, it's just the height of hypocrisy. But I do believe that President Trump will nominate someone to fill this position. I think it will be a young female jurist, probably Judge Amy Coney Barrett. And uh, it will be a woman who is already on the Court of Appeals, who's already been uh, vetted essentially by the conservative groups like the Federal Society, has a proven track record, and will be on the court again for decades to come. And I think that's how this is going to play out.
1: Yes, and that would shift the balance of the court to a 6-3 to three Republican majority, if I got my numbers correct on that.
0: That's right. So right now, or I should say this morning, the Supreme Court was divided five to four with conservatives in the majority. Right now, the court is divided four to four. And we have seen the court operate four to four before. Again, that was in 2016 after Justice Scalia passed away. And I think in the short term, what we're going to see is Chief Justice John Roberts really trying to find a way for the court to have narrow decisions where they have some consensus, but if the court is divided, what happens is that the lower court decision becomes the final decision. That's the decision that stands. Um, you know, there's some really big cases already coming up dealing with religious rights, freedom from discrimination, the Affordable Care Act it was already slated to be a really important Supreme court term. Although I guess we should say, you know, name a Supreme court term that isn't important, but one thing Joe that you and I talked about throughout July is how important chief justice John Roberts was because he was the center of the court and really trying to, I think, hold the court together with, you know, paper clips and rubber bands and, uh, That could change if the court is six to three conservative to liberal. Um, He loses that power. He loses a lot of power.
1: And looking at just, as you said, 45-ish days from the 2020 presidential election, the tension was already pretty high. And now it has been ratcheted up to nuclear levels, it seems like, Um, you know, as the sitting president. Donald Trump has issued a very long list of potential Supreme Court nominees, and Joe Biden has been reluctant to do so. There was a piece in the AP just two days ago where uh, a Biden protege said something to the effect of, um, you know, he's reluctant to, uh, you know, give a list of nominees so that Trump then doesn't have another target to, you know, complain about between now and the election. But do you think that Joe Biden may be pressured more to do so?
0: Yeah, I think that this is the point where, and frankly, I think it's fair for the American public to say, um, Joe Biden, it might be you who fills this seat. And so this is not a hypothetical vacancy anymore. Again, I don't actually think that the seat will still be open after the election, but or after the next president, if there's a new president is inaugurated. But I do think it's time for Vice President Biden to say, this is my thinking and here are some people who I might put forward. I think it's fair for people to ask. you know, having said that, we know that there will be a huge difference ideologically between the people who are nominated by, if it's President Biden versus President Trump. And uh, Joe Biden was on the Senate Judiciary Committee for years. And he knows exactly how these confirmation hearings are run because he ran them, and he's very um, involved in the process. He certainly has short lists, and I think it's absolutely fair for people to ask him to share those.
1: Do you think this is a case where he has a list uh, in his back pocket and was just reluctant to do so to try to keep it from becoming a wedge issue in the election?
0: I think he does have that list in his shirt pocket, in his back pocket, in his front pocket. And I think his uh, campaign has it, too. It would just strain common sense to think that they have not thought about it. Um, I think, in part, uh, Joe Biden is trying to look like he's not you know, counting his chickens before they hatch. In part, I think he didn't believe that this would be a winning um, point for him to name specific people. But again, at this point, we have a real vacancy, not a hypothetical vacancy.
1: Yeah, and that real vacancy was a lioness of the court. There was a real human flesh and blood behind all these things. And I think that's, I think that's where we should circle back around to. So uh, my condolences to her children, Jane and James, her grandchildren and her friends and the rest of her extended family. Such a loss uh, personally and politically in our country. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Joe, I'm, I'm really glad that you reminded us of that because you know, I think we all have this really bizarre feeling when a Supreme Court justice passes away, which is a human has died, a very important human of great consequence. And in my case, somebody who I really did think was an important trailblazer when it came to issues that are important to me, like gender equality. And then at almost the same moment, you say, what's the impact for my life going forward, meaning who's going to fill this position. And, you know, some of this is the absurdity of a Supreme Court where obviously there are lifetime appointments and we're basically looking at actuarial tables when we're deciding who to nominate. But thank you for bringing the humanity. Thank you for talking through with me about the legal aspects, the political aspects. There will be much more to say Um, But we have a growing number of very loyal listeners to Passing Judgment. We wanted to talk briefly about these issues. And Joe, thank you again for joining me on a Friday night.
1: It was a sad discussion, but I'm honored to have it with you, Jessica. Thank you so very much.
0: All right. Take good care, everybody. Be well.